Welcome to the Beautiful Illusions Podcast, where two friends, Jeff and Darren, ponder the intersection of reality, consciousness, and culture. These conversations comprise an ongoing attempt to construct meaning by exploring art and science, enriching our understanding of the context underpinning our current moment in time, and imagining possible futures for human civilization. Of course, we don't claim any special knowledge, expertise, or insight into any of these topics. We just enjoy learning, thinking, and talking about big ideas, deep questions, and the beautiful illusion that is the subjective human experience. In today's episode, Slaughterhouse-Five, A Look Through the Cognitive Lens, Jeff and I continue to explore an idea he first proposed in episode 12, developing an analytical cognitive lens that uses concepts from cognitive science and related fields, and science more generally, in an attempt to better integrate modern neuroscientific and psychological concepts into our engagement with fiction and our understanding of the actions, motivations, and biases of characters and the humans who create them. In this episode, we examine Kurt Vonnegut's classic novel, Slaughterhouse-Five, delving into the nature of time, the human perception of time, how time is presented in the novel, and the implications of this presentation for the major themes of the book. Jeff presents various ideas and theories about human consciousness that we then try to apply to both what is presented in the actual text as well as to the author himself. As always, a complete set of show notes with links to almost everything we discuss or reference can be found on our website, beautifulillusions.org. And now for today's episode, Slaughterhouse-Five, A Look Through the Cognitive Lens. We did a Gatsby episode where we looked at Gatsby from this cognitive lens that we're trying to develop uh, a new literary theory. And when we did the Gatsby episode, I had a really solid thesis that I wanted to develop. I had this one idea. I used the pyramid of choice, and I really knew how I wanted to look at it in the novel. And then uh, we can argue over <laughs> our memory as to who proposed Slaughterhouse-Five. You claim that I proposed it. I claim that you proposed it. We will never know. Well, we'll know who proposed it in that episode, though. Yeah. I don't know I, what happened before that. <laughs> I definitely said it at the end of that episode. Uh, we can check that. But <laughs> I almost definitely said it. Uh, I don't know. I think I said it at the end of that episode. And I think you initially proposed it. Either way, we read Slaughterhouse-Five. Vonnegut's always been one of my favorite authors. He's one of those authors where I read Cat's Cradle and then proceeded to read every book he ever wrote. And I really enjoyed rereading Slaughterhouse-Five. But what I found happening is I reread Slaughterhouse-Five while I was reading the five books I've been talking about reading on consciousness. And I kept thinking about cognitivism and how it applies. I don't have a thesis today. I got uh, five to 25 potential theses that I'm just going to randomly throw against the wall and kind of push the limits of where cognitivism could go. So don't expect this to be an organized discussion in any... Last episode was a brainstorm of an essay. Today is a brainstorm of, like, what can we possibly do with this really cool novel? Yeah, I think that sounds great. And I also, you know, I know for me, one of the cool things about cognitivism in general to me right now is it's so exciting because the field of neuroscience and cognitive science is really just getting going into us actually, quote, knowing some things. Um, and there's just so much interesting thought going on around it. And I don't pretend to really understand any of it. I just think it's all pretty cool. And it sparks my mind a lot of times to just read some of these ideas and uh, try to understand what some of these people who spend literally their entire professional lives thinking and researching and, and working on and how can we 
apply it to our everyday experience. So it's really fun to read the books and think about some of these things because I don't think I ever did that before. And I'm pretty sure the very first time I ever read Slaughterhouse-Five, I liked it because I just liked it in the way that a teenager would like anything. I think it's cool and it seems edgy or whatever. But now I'm just gaining so much more appreciation for what actually goes into a novel like this. And then when you start tying in some of these other concepts that maybe the author wasn't even thinking about but are clearly there because the author is a human and has a human brain, it's really fascinating on many levels. So uh, I really enjoyed rereading this and thinking about some of these things. Yeah, I like being on the outside of the cutting edge of this newer field, neuroscience, and finding all these discoveries and playing around with these discoveries with the idea that maybe in 50 years, everything we're saying and even the stuff we're reading is going to be not necessarily proven wrong, but more precise or dug into more where they understand it even more so than the offshoots we're getting today because it's a perfect analogy to psychoanalysis which is the lens that maybe cognitivism comes off of Uh, psychoanalytical theory isn't necessarily right anymore freud isn't necessarily right anymore but all the stuff that was done with psychoanalysis is still cool to look back on and see how people were shooting off these different theories and um, don't necessarily work as much as they did then but it's still interesting thinking developing and moving forward oh so basically i'm just saying what I say today may be completely wrong <laughs> even right now and it's probably going to be completely wrong in 20 years, but it's still very fun and cool to say and try and think these ways. Absolutely. As we say in the intro to every episode, uh, you know, we're not experts, but we like cool things and big ideas. So <laughs> here we go. Yeah. So let's start with the first line of Slaughterhouse-Five. Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. And when I read that first line, Uh, my mind immediately took off with all the different ways you could look at this novel because the novel in and of itself, the structure jumps through time with this character, Billy Pilgrim. It jumps to various points in his life and the character is actually supposedly jumping to these different moments in his life. And it immediately starts to make us think about how our mind perceives time. What is this thing we call time? And both of us have heard scientists talk about this idea of time and how it doesn't actually exist necessarily Uh, which is very confusing to me and you, I believe. So time is a great place to dive in and start to think about this novel. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think actually that line is technically the first line of the second chapter. Yes. Right? Yes. The first chapter of the book starts with, it's almost a meta, because the author is present, talking about himself writing the book. Yes. And then the actual, I guess what you would consider the narrative of the story starts at the beginning of the second chapter with the Billy Pilgrim has become unstuck in time line. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and then he proceeds to really play a lot with the concept of time throughout this book and how we perceive time flowing um, or is time even flowing at all, right? So the idea here is that Billy is visiting these different parts of his life and relaying them. And and then the author tells them as if Billy's experiencing them in the present of the novel, even though it's in these different times. And the way it's structured, the author himself is a character in Billy's story because they're both in the war together. They encounter each other at different times, even though they never actually have any interactions on the page. There's like a couple of times where he points out, that was me, I was that guy who did that, or you know, that was me in the story. So he's telling the story of Billy, and it's never really clear to us if 
Billy experiences this. You know, we know that Billy has a traumatic event, at, you know, a plane crash, right, at some point in his life. And then after the plane crash, it's when he starts telling these stories about aliens and traveling to these different parts in time. And, and it's never quite clear if we're supposed to believe that Billy's really unstuck in time or that he's describing Billy's mental state or he's making some comment on the way we might remember our lives at a certain point later in life. How do we perceive that time? Is the present real? Is the future real? Is the past real? Um, can we actually revisit any of these things? You know, so all that's kind of going on and it's kind of unclear at first or really even in the end, exactly what point Vonnegut's trying to make. When I taught Slaughterhouse-Five, I kind of wanted the kids to notice that Vonnegut at a certain point makes it seem clear that this is probably not something that's actually happening to Billy Pilgrim, but that um, is more of uh, an effect that happened to his brain because he survived the firebombing of Dresden and has various, like, you know, whatever you want to call it, PTSD-type symptoms. Because there's a moment later in the novel where Billy Pilgrim encounters a, a novel by Kilgore Trout. Kilgore Trout is this uh, maybe alter ego of Kurt Vonnegut, a science fiction writer that never really makes it. Nobody reads his books. But in the novel by Kilgore Trout, Billy Pilgrim sees how an earthling man and an earthling woman have been kidnapped and taken to this planet. And this is something that happens to Billy Pilgrim in his being right. unstuck in time. And then while he's in the bookstore flipping through the book by Kilgore Trout, he sees a magazine where Montana Wild Hack has been kidnapped and nobody knows where she is. So Montana Wild Hack is the woman that ends up being in this bubble on the planet called Trafalmador, where Billy Pilgrim thinks he goes. So I, I wanted my kids to notice that maybe there is a hint, because this is kind of what you teach in the English classroom when you're first teaching readers, maybe there is a hint that this is not actually happening. But today, all bets are off. Today, I want to go with the ambiguity that you pointed out, mm -hmm. where that's an inference that can be made based on something Vonnegut puts in the novel. But yeah. we're going to stay away from that inference, and we're going to say maybe he really is unstuck in time, or we're going to say various versions of it. Yeah. Maybe he really did go to the alien planet, or maybe he didn't go to the alien planet. We're going to allow ourselves to explore uh, the world as both a fiction and a reality and a mix of both at certain points in time. Yeah, because the way I see it at this point is, and I know we're not going to talk about memory that much, but if I think of Billy Pilgrim's life from the end, it seems to me that all of this is really a reconstruction. And you can imagine being like 80 years old, let's say, and you've had this whole life and now you're reconstructing your memories and you're remembering this piece or that piece. And I could see depending on your mental state, actually believing or reliving a moment and thinking like you're actually in that moment, almost like deja vu or one of those weird sensations that you have. Um, but also just what we know about the nature of how memory is, because it's a reconstruction, we can incorporate things into our memories that aren't even real. So like in this case, if you take the PTSD, like you talked about perhaps from being involved in this terrible incident in World War II, then also surviving a plane crash, right? And having a brain injury and then being exposed to all these fantastical elements through science fiction. And then at some point he experiences it all as being quote real to him. And his memory is disordered in that I can't put events in sequence. I just can remember any of it at any given time. So he 
travels to those moments and experiences them. And we're kind of getting this weird, like godlike view into his life through the author who's telling this story. And it's interesting because like you said, if we assume all that stuff really happened, we get a very different interpretation of the book than if we assume this strange thing that's happening in the mind of Billy Pilgrim, because then you go much more down the route of what is Vonnegut saying about war and humanity and all that stuff through this character who's had this experience versus some of this other weirder stuff that we can maybe get into with time if we go, well, maybe all that stuff does really exist and maybe all moments do exist at once, but our brains can't handle that. Yes. What I'm going to do basically through the course of this episode is I'm going to bring in different quotations from these books about consciousness I've read, and I'm going to try to apply them to Slaughterhouse-Five. But what happened during the reading of this is I had actually finished those five books, and one of my teacher friends had given me this book by Carlo Rovelli, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. So I was reading this, and in the book, as Carlo Rovelli says, there is a detectable difference between the past and the future only when there is the flow of heat. Heat is linked to probability, and probability, in turn, is linked to the fact that our interactions with the rest of the world do not register the fine details of reality. The flow of time emerges thus from physics, but not in the context of an exact description of things as they are. It emerges, rather, in the context of statistics and thermodynamics. This may hold the key to the enigma of time. The present does not exist in an objective sense any more than here exists objectively. But the microscopic interaction with the world prompts the emergence of temporal phenomenon within a system. So basically, in the world of physics, time doesn't necessarily exist in the way that we perceive it. The flow of time is something that is created in our head. So while I'm reading Slaughterhouse-Five the second time around, and I have some of the or third or fourth, I don't even know what reading this is, and I have some of these thoughts from Sean Carroll, and then I read this book by Carlo Rovelli, and my mind is like, holy cow. Maybe Kurt Vonnegut actually had a sense of how time actually works when he's creating these Tralfamadorians who don't see time the same way that we see time. They actually see time as a larger chunk of things. Uh, again, trying to wrap my head around this, and I then reshaped my whole understanding of this novel, and I was like, wait, there's something to what he's writing that's more of a reality than I initially thought, than I initially pointed out to my students. Yeah, and then there's a passage that you and I had both highlighted when at some point when he's first taken by the Tralfamadorians and he's conversing with them and he says, Billy Pilgrim says, where am I? And the Tralfamadorian that he's with says, trapped in another blob of amber, Mr. Pilgrim. We are where we have to be just now. And then continues on. He says, how did I get here? And the Tralfamadorian, and I love this, it says, it would take another earthling to explain it to you. Earthlings are the great explainers, explaining why this event is structured as it is, telling how other events may be achieved or avoided. I am a Tralfamadorian, seeing all time as you might see a stretch of the Rocky Mountains. All time is all time. It does not change. It does not lend itself to warnings or explanations. It simply is. Take it moment by moment, and you will find that we are all, as I've said before, bugs in amber. And the thing about this that I think is really kind of cool is that it gets at what you were saying about our perception of time is like something is happening to me now, and then the future is the future. It hasn't happened yet, and the past 
happened at some time previous to now, but it, it's inaccessible. It already happened. And so there's a fundamental difference between the past and the future in some sense, right? Because the future hasn't happened yet. And the past happened a certain way and that's it. It just exists. Does it exist? Like, what is it even? So I, in preparation for this episode, I was like, I'm going to go back and listen to all these episodes of uh, the Mindscape podcast where Sean Carroll does anything about time because he, I know he talks a lot about the arrow of time and entropy and which is what that Rovelli quote is basically referring to with the, the movement of heat, right? He's yeah. ta- talking about um, concepts of entropy and thermodynamics. And I don't understand any of this stuff really, but I came across a concept, eternalism versus presentism, which is apparently this philosophical slash scientific argument that's been going on. And presentism is a theory in philosophy, which says that the only events and objects which exist are those that exist in the present. So only things which exist now, right now, really exist. It's a theory which focuses on the temporal present, that is, things existing in the present moment. Eternalism contrasts to presentism and is thought of as its opposite. Eternalism is the philosophical theory which says that all points in time are equally real. The past, the present, and the future are all real. In this sense, Socrates and tomorrow's events exist right now, even if I cannot see them or interact with them. And this is weird because I don't even know what they mean by real in this context. Like, What does it mean to say that only the present is real? Which is presentism. Which is, I think, your, our, all our intuitive, normal views of the world, right? That's like intuitively how we go right. through the world. Right, This moment exists, now it's gone, right. and that's all we consciously right. see and absorb. And yeah. so a presentist, I think, would say that the present moment is real, and what happens is there's just an ever-changing present. Yeah. And so the present the... continues to change, but there is no actual future or past Whereas an eternalist would say, well, the past and the future are real right now, even if we can't access them. All time always exists. Yes, all time always exists. And this is where we get into these weird concepts of like, if we know enough, right, we might understand the present and the the future in a different way. And like the Tralfamadorians who can see everything, it's kind of, I take it as almost the same as knowing everything, seeing the future and seeing the past and all of it at once. And so to them... This idea between future, past, present, like it's, it's not meaningful. Rovelli actually says, for a hypothetically supersensible being, a Tralfamadorian, I put that part in, there would be no flowing of time. The universe would be a single block of past, present, and future. But due to the limitations of our consciousness, we perceive only a blurred vision of the world and live in time. From this limited, blurred focus, we get our perception of the passage of time. And then Vonnegut talks about the Tralfamadorian's view of time almost in comparable language. All moments, past, present, and future, this is Vonnegut quotation right here, always have existed, always will exist. So Vonnegut is essentially talking about eternalism right here. And Vonnegut's, um, so I watched the documentary Unstuck in Time about Kurt Vonnegut. Vonnegut's older brother is like a major scientist in the world, Bernie Vonnegut. He discovered a way to seed clouds to make rain. So he probably, Vonnegut has probably some sense of science. I don't know much how much credit we could give him. And he says, the Tralfamadorians can look at all the different moments just the way we can look at a stretch of the Rocky Mountains, for instance. They can see how permanent all the moments are, and they can look at any moment that interests them. And this blew my mind as I'm reading the Ravelli and I'm reading the 
Vonnegut. And mm-hmm. I'm like, holy cow, mm-hmm. the Tralfamadorians are this super sensible being uh, that don't have a flowing of time. And it starts to roll into my whole idea of looking at a novel with our understanding of consciousness. This novel, Kurt Vonnegut, is exploring a different form of consciousness that can possibly develop, although my mind really struggles with the idea of how it could develop, but it's not outside of the realm of physics. Yeah. So to stick with physics and where some of this might have come from, I'm going to read some more here. According to the presentists, only the present exists, but this assumes that the present moment, the events occurring, will be the same for everyone, an idea which runs up against special relativity. So this is a physics concept from Einstein. We're talking about the early part of the 20th century now. So these ideas are out there by the time Vonnegut's writing this in the late 60s for sure. This assumes that the present moment, the events occurring, will be the same for everyone, an idea which runs up against special relativity. Special relativity says that observers with different frames of reference, such as observers moving at different speeds, can have different perceptions of whether a pair of events happen at the same time or at different times. In addition, someone moving faster than someone else will experience time passing slower than they do. The theory also says we have no reason to prefer one observer's perception to another. Both are correct. We therefore cannot say that there are a set of events simultaneously happening in the present. People's, quote, present, what exists, is different depending on their frame of reference. In Einsteinian relativity, the present is not something which is an absolute element of reality. As Einstein himself said, quote, people like us who believe in physics know that the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. It's so crazy and... I know it's a lot of reading, but there's this passage in the book where the Tralfamadorians are trying to explain to other Tralfamadorians how Billy perceives time because it doesn't make any sense to them, which I think is really funny. And if you think about it, as hard of a time as we're having trying to understand seeing all time as one eternal thing that always exists and there's no meaningful distinction between past, present, and future, the Tralfamadorians have that much trouble in this novel understanding Billy's presentist view. So they say there was a lot that Billy said that was gibberish to the Tralfamadorians, too. They couldn't imagine what time looked like to him. Billy had given up on explaining that. The guide outside had to explain it as best he could. So the guide invited the crowd to imagine that they were looking across a desert at a mountain range on a day that was twinkling bright and clear. They could look at a peak or a bird or a cloud at a stone right in front of them or even down into a canyon behind them. But among them was this poor earthling, and his head was encased in a steel sphere, which he could never take off. There was only one eye hole through which he could look, and welded to that eye hole were six feet of pipe. So like you imagine, you know, a human with a steel sphere over their head with one eye hole with six feet of pipe, and now they're looking out at this scene. What could they see, right? And then he continues, this was only the beginning of Billy's miseries in the metaphor. He was also strapped to a steel lattice, which was bolted to a flat car on rails, and there was no way he could turn his head or touch the pipe. The far end of the pipe rested on a bipod, which was also bolted to the flat car. All Billy could see was the little dot at the end of the pipe. He didn't know he was on a flat car. He didn't know there was anything peculiar about his situation. The flat car sometimes crept, sometimes went extremely fast, often stopped, went uphill, downhill, around curves, along straightaways. Whatever poor Billy saw through the pipe, he had no choice but to say to himself, that's life. But this is how the Tralfamadorians see Billy seeing the world. Billy has no conscious perception 
of his limitations, right? So he doesn't understand that what he sees isn't all there is. And what's awesome about that quotation, and we're going to come back to it at a certain point, I have it later on. What's awesome about that quotation is it actually perfectly predicts some of the things that neuroscience is figuring out. Our senses don't absorb 99% of the world. Our senses absorb maybe 1% of the right. world. And the rest of the world is this thing that's made up in our mind. Because if we were to absorb everything in the world, our brain would be on overload constantly. Yeah. So he's not only looking at time in that, but he's also starting to get an understanding of how our consciousness is built. And uh, I'm going to drag us along here because I really want to try and force these five uh, views of consciousness <laughs> onto this novel. But uh, So one of the books I read is called From Bacteria to Bach and Back by Daniel Dennett. And it's uh, about consciousness, but about a bunch of other things. It's kind of a philosophical look. One of the central tenets he has is that competence comes before comprehension. And he talks a lot about the evolution of life as a whole and how competence is the majority of that evolution. And comprehension comes very late on. But that's just kind of one of his central ideas. What I want to take from his book is a quotation about cause and effect. And then I want to see, again, I might fail miserably here, but I want to see, and uh, I'm going to force you to help me a little bit. Uh, you could go in your own directions. I want to see if we could apply this. He says, the normativity of reason giving imposes itself even when we are at a loss for an answer. There is an obligation to have reasons that you can give for your behavior. This is our consciousness. This is not the Tralfamadorian consciousness that doesn't need reasons like we do. Back into the Dennett. If no plausible reasons occur to us, the wisdom of our ancestors can be wrung in when necessary. They knew the reasons, and we are grateful that they taught us, even though they didn't tell us why. The impressions of causation we experience comes from inside, not outside. We are born with a sort of automatic causal sense. In fact, we are succumbing to a benign user illusion, misinterpreting our fulfilled expectation of an ensuing B after a preceding A, as somehow coming from the outer world. And as I read that, I'm like, wow, that still exactly fits into what we're talking about. This is still the idea of how uh, Vonnegut juxtaposes the Tralfamadorian view of the world where there isn't a cause and effect necessarily, where everything exists always, uh, with our view of the world, or Billy Pilgrim's initial view of the world, where there is a cause and effect where something happens and then there is effect from that thing that happens. So I wrote down a couple of ideas on the back inside cover of the book as I was reading. I really tried to go out big. And what I looked at was how Billy Pilgrim represents imperfect information and the Tralfamadorians represent perfect information. So this idea that we've heard many times of like Laplace's demon, right? This imaginary being that could literally know everything that is to be known about the current state of the universe and how if you could do that, you'd be able to wind forward or backward and know any moment and present, past and future would have no meaning anymore because it's just all this one thing that just exists and you could look at any specific slice and know exactly what's before and exactly what's after, right? And to me, the whole device of Billy Pilgrim that Vonnegut invents and uses, he really uses it as a way to obliterate causality. And by obliterating causality, you obliterate meaning. Because if nothing causes anything else, it's very hard to see how one thing could mean anything because this beginning, middle, and end, if one thing doesn't cause another, how could there be any meaning? It's just things just are. They just are that way, right? And, and the Tralfamadorians say that at some point where, you know, like this moment just is. 
It doesn't have to mean anything. It only means something to you. And it only means something to you because like you said, your brain is not perceiving the whole world. And what we've talked about before and some of the previous learning that we've done, we know that what is presented to your consciousness is a construction that your brain is making based on internal state of your body, predictions that it's making, past experiences, and it's not necessarily what is actually happening out there, right? And so this causes us to believe that, well, like you said, if A happens and B follows it, well, then A somehow must have caused B. And that could just be such a function of the way our brains work that had some evolved adaptive advantage for us at some point and maybe still does I don't I don't know that we might never really be able to wrap our minds around these concepts there's no reasonable expectation that a brain that evolved to survive on the earth this tiny little speck in this little corner of the universe should in any way have the capability to understand the universe right but I do think that quote that you read absolutely has applicability to a lot of what's going on in this book. Yeah, because what ends up happening, uh, the quotation I pulled from Slaughterhouse-Five is one you already read. So I, I just, I'll read the last part really quick. It's where he's talking to the Chalfamadorians about the why, and they say, well, here we are, Mr. Pilgrim, trapped in the amber of this moment. There is no why. And then if you think about Vonnegut's purpose in doing this, or Vonnegut's purpose in writing the book, or even just what ends up happening in writing this book in this way, which is kind of the way I like to look at a book rather than uh, assuming we can know an author's purpose. You start to think about what Vonnegut might be doing, actually noticing a design flaw in our own consciousness, kind of how you're starting to talk about this, the design flaw that we have. Design flaw might not be the best wording, but this thing that we have that is cause and effect. It's probably not a design flaw because it probably helped us survive through yeah. the years, but it's a it's a design aspect that makes us miserable in time. Uh, it can make you miserable to constantly be thinking about why and cause and effect because Billy Pilgrim essentially starts to think like a Tralfamadorian through the course of the novel, or maybe even at a lot of the points in the novel, he has limited emotional responses to things. He doesn't fully engage in a lot of things. And at times it seems like he's just kind of emptied out of all emotion because of what he experienced in the war. Uh, but you can also look at Vonnegut bringing in this Tralfamadorian view and you could be like, oh, so Billy Pilgrim is maybe starting to go. It's almost like an Eastern type of view of the world. He's starting to go in this other view of the world, which is allowing him to exist post-giant traumatic experience. So he's shutting down this design aspect of our consciousness that is cause and effect. Mm -hmm. Because if he allows that to continue to run, then he has to think that the firebombing of Dresden had a cause and he has to have an emotional response against that cause. And the emotional response against that cause is not going to be a positive emotional response. It's not going to feel anywhere close to good inside of his being. So this is like a survival mechanism for him. I think there's a lot to unpack there. And I agree with everything you just said. And if we think about Kurt Vonnegut, the actual man experiencing World War II and the bombing of Dresden, and at the time he's writing the book when the Vietnam War is going on, right? Another terrible war where people are dying and it doesn't seem like there's any meaning to any of it. And you try to go, 
how could there be meaning in a world where these terrible atrocities just continue to happen again and again and again? And, you know, it must not really mean anything. It's just a thing that is happening. And, you know, that's kind of encapsulated in really what is the slogan and the cultural meme now of this book, which is the phrase, so it goes, right? It's like, oh, here's a thing, a natural thing, a bird is chirping. And, oh, over here, a man gets dismembered and is dead. Oh, so it goes. It's just the way that it is, right? And Vonnegut can be looked at as a cynical kind of guy who's pessimistic about humanity. And I think he does have some pessimism about some of the way this goes. But I think really what it comes down to is it seems like, at least in the book, that our search for meaning or our wanting to make things mean things and then tell these stories about it keeps leading us to these awful situations. And really what I think is the thing that he would say is stop looking for meaning and just be kinder to one another or something like that. This is another one of his famous quotes. Maybe you know what book this is from. Hello, babies. Welcome to Earth. It's hot in the summer and cold in the winter. It's round and wet and crowded. On the outside, babies, you've got a 100 years here. There's only one rule that I know of, babies. God damn it. You've got to be kind. This quote comes from Vonnegut's 1965 novel, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, the story of Elliot Rosewater, a World War II veteran and millionaire who develops a social conscience, abandons New York City, and establishes the Rosewater Foundation in Rosewater, Indiana, quote, where he attempts to dispense unlimited amounts of love and limited sums of money to anyone who will come to his office. Vonnegut's fictional alter ego, Kilgore Trout, appears for the first time in this novel, and one of his stories is about aliens from Tralfamador. Rosewater himself later makes an appearance in Slaughterhouse-Five as a fellow patient in a veteran's hospital where he befriends Billy Pilgrim and introduces him to the novels of Kilgore Trout. This is a notable example of the intertextuality that Vonnegut used effectively throughout many of his novels. And so it's like, what could any of this possibly mean? There's all this horrible, horrible stuff going on. And like some of the things he describes in this book, and then even the bombing of Dresden itself, which is this horrible thing that we don't even remember. Nobody knows anything about this, which is another point that I think is made in there. I don't know. There's just, to me, a lot happening here where he's using everything that he's doing in this book to really effectively show that a lot of the stories that we're telling and a lot of the meaning we're trying to make is also happening in this place where all this terrible stuff is happening and maybe stop trying to figure out why it's happening and just be a little more accepting of the fact that we live in a world where awful things happen and try to think a little bit more about how we can maybe not have those things happen. But I don't even know if really he goes there in this book at all. Yeah. I don't want to lose anything you said. I'm going to move to the next consciousness book because I think it goes off of some of the things you just said. But I don't want to lose a lot of what you just said because I think it's going to continue to develop as we discuss. Because it's interesting. He's writing this anti-war book, but then he creates these alien species and they still have war. Uh, so even the species yeah. who doesn't get caught up in why and cause and effect, they still have war. They not only still have war, but they're the reason that the universe ends because they blow it up in a billion years or something like that. He says that during the course of the novel. So before we move away from Vonnegut as a human being and get into this anti-war novel that also says war is almost impossible to stop, but just be kind uh, is an underlying message always in Vonnegut. And we'll come back to that, which is uh, I love. It's the complex we suck 
but we're awesome uh, back and forth that is Vonnegut. That's, I think, the thing that tugged me into him because that's often how I view the world. We don't know a ton about his actual life, his autobiography. I watched the documentary. I know a little bit. And we also have the first chapter, which is what I'm going to lean heavy on right now. So one of the next books I read was The Deep History of Ourselves, Joseph Ledoux. And his consciousness idea is basically that emotions is a distinctly human thing. We have these triggers that happen in our brain, fear or something like that. They have them in animals too, but then our brain and our consciousness writes a story that is the emotion. And he says that, that only happens for humans. That makes sense, right? Yeah. All right. And then... Well, we don't know if that's true. No, we, we don't know if it's but true. But that's what but he the says. Way, the, yeah. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to make sure my synopsis of it yeah. made sense. Because then he talks about this interesting thing called writing exposure therapy, which is very much like a writing version of cognitive behavioral therapy. He says, writing exposure therapy is a variant of cognitive behavioral therapy. Writing about trauma is proposed to modify and clarify one's trauma. Research suggests that wet writing exposure therapy may achieve results faster than both traditional cognitive behavioral therapy and medications. We understand ourselves through the stories we tell, both to ourselves and others, about who we are. And before this, he goes into a bunch of stuff that we've already talked about, about memory and how if you retell yourself a memory, and then he says, so you can do this in writing. So uh, to me, this is beyond applicable to Slaughterhouse-Five, because to me, Slaughterhouse-Five and a lot of what Vonnegut writes is his own writing exposure therapy to his experience of Dresden. And the documentarian of Unstuck in Time purposely has a whole chunk where it's trying to get Vonnegut to talk about the actual memory of Dresden, but Vonnegut uh, evades it constantly and never dives in and has developed his own like survival mechanism. He's definitely not Billy Pilgrim, but there is an aspect of Vonnegut in his writing of Billy Pilgrim that is, I believe, trying to get over his own trauma from the war. Yeah, and you could even say, if you expand it beyond the war, his writing is probably in some sense his trying to deal with his exposure to humanity. <laughs> Yeah. At least his version of humanity, because if you're brought up in the world and you're a young person, you know, everybody goes through this experience, right, of believing the world and people are a certain way and then kind of having that shattered and learning that the world can be a terrible place, too. There are things like death and there are things like terrible atrocities and all this stuff that has happened throughout the past and continues to happen now. And then how do we continue to live in a world like that? And so I think he's obviously working some of that out, but also we want to feel like we could actually better the world that we live in. Right. And there's an interesting quote. I just, this little one where he's in a hospital, Billy Pilgrim is in a hospital somewhere and he's in the bed next to Rosewater, Rosewater and yes. Rosewater's the one who first exposes him to the Kilgore Trout novels. And there's a little passage where he says, like science fiction is basically trying to tell these new stories about the world so we can maintain our sense that there's possibility. But then he has this really interesting quote where he says, another time Billy heard Rosewater say to a psychiatrist, quote, I think you guys are going to have to come up with a lot of wonderful new lies or people just aren't going to want to go on living. Right. And so it's this whole idea that how do we convince ourselves to keep going in a world where all this stuff is going on. And, uh, you know, that bit that you were referring to where the Tralfamadorians talk about how, yeah, they, we have war too, but he says, uh, the Tralfamadorian says to Billy Pilgrim, that's one thing earthlings might learn to do if they tried hard enough, ignore the awful times and concentrate on the good ones. Not 
eliminate the awful times because really there's got to be this acceptance that life is like a beautiful tragedy. It starts with birth, it ends with death, and a whole lot of bad things can happen, but a whole lot of good things can happen. And maybe focusing more on those things can help us in some way, but also we have to be realistic that there's all these terrible things, right? So it goes. Yeah. So, and then if we jump back to the first chapter, and I have a quotation from the first chapter, he goes to one of his buddies, O'Hare. I would assume that's a real war buddy that he had, uh, because at this point he is Kurt Vonnegut in chapter one. Yeah. the, The very first paragraph of the first chapter, he says, all this happened more or less, the war parts anyway. One guy I knew really was shot, you know. So I think this is real. He might just have different names. Yeah. So he's sitting there with O'Hare in his house and he says, so we tried to ignore Mary and remember the war. I took a couple belts of the booze I'd brought. We would chuckle or grin sometimes as though war stories were coming back, but neither one of us could remember anything good. And this goes right off of the Tralfamadorian quotation you just read. Uh, O'Hare remembered one guy who got into a lot of wine in Dresden before it was bombed, and we had to take him home in a wheelbarrow. It wasn't much to write a book about. I remember two Russian soldiers who had looted a clock factory. They had a horse-drawn wagon full of clocks. They were happy and drunk. They were smoking huge cigarettes they had rolled in newspaper. That was about it for memories. And Mary was still making noise. So here, if I bring in, again, I'm trying to apply these uh, consciousness ideas, we bring in this idea of writing exposure therapy. So what I understand from the documentary Unstuck in Time is this is a novel that, and he even says it in the opening chapter, this is a novel that Vonnegut has supposedly been working on like since he started becoming yeah, he a writer. he's got thousands of pages and yeah. Yeah, he's always going to write his famous novel about Dresden, and he jokes about it at like cocktail parties with other writers. Uh, yes, I'm working on that famous novel on Dresden. And then in the documentary, they show he literally did have thousands of pages, so many different drafts of Slaughterhouse-Five, where he started in different ways and eventually comes to this way. And to me, this is the perfect way, and it also represents to us how he's using this writing exposure therapy because it's him trying to talk to his old buddy about these memories and there is no way to really in- fully engage in these memories of war that isn't atrocious and uh, won't make them feel miserable as people uh, so from this moment with O'Hare he starts to create this Billy Pilgrim character and like I said before this Billy Pilgrim character has essentially shut off emotional response mm-hmm. uh, and that's kind of maybe Vonnegut Vonnegut doesn't do that in real life, but that's kind of like almost like what Vonnegut maybe wanted to do to himself because he talks about Billy Pilgrim and he says he never got mad at anything. He was wonderful that way. And later on, he talks about Billy Pilgrim. And this is where the complexities of the anti-war novel, but with weird views on humanity come through. He says, Billy was not moved to protest the bombing of North Vietnam, did not shudder about the hideous things he himself had seen bombing do. He was simply having lunch with the Lions Club. This is later when he's living his normal life. So again, if we use the writing exposure therapy idea, this is Vonnegut personally trying to encapsulate some horrible moments in time so they they don't emotionally affect him. Like we could explore this even further. But then if you look at that quotation and some of the things you were saying uh, that I wanted to come back to, I find it very interesting, especially since this book comes out during the Vietnam War And it becomes the book that propels Vonnegut to Vonnegut as the major cultural icon we know today. Before this, he's a minor author. This is the book that makes him Kurt Vonnegut. And a lot of it is because of the time it was written. 
and the anti-Vietnam sentiment. But yet his central character doesn't go protest Vietnam, which I find really interesting, especially when you think about the cause and effect stuff we said before. Mm -hmm. Because what comes across in that idea that he doesn't go protest Vietnam War? I, I think if you could, again, I'm brainstorming like 17 different essays. Yeah. I think you could put it into the writing exposure therapy idea of like, oh, this is how Vonnegut himself is trying to deal with the past experience. But then you could look into the larger context of 1970 and the Vietnam War going on and so forth and so on. Well, and also I think that maybe what he's exploring there, and this might run a little bit contrary to the comments I was just making about accepting that there's all these terrible things, is that maybe what happened to Billy Pilgrim is that through his experience, he just, it's almost nihilistic, right? It's like, well, what does any of it matter? The past, the present, this is going to happen, that's going to happen. Why protest the bombing of wherever? Because this one already happened and terrible things are always going to happen. And maybe it's Vonnegut's way of warning against becoming numb, even though, yes, terrible things are going to happen. We should never get to the point where we just go, well, terrible things are going to happen. So why do anything? Right. And I don't know, but there's just so many ways you can kind of think about it. And I think all of us in our hearts want to believe that we can make the world a better place. And so We've talked before about the manifest image and the scientific image and romanticism and concepts like that. And it is hard when you start internalizing some of the implications of some of this science that there's no meaning and we just create our own meaning. And it is a little bit bleak, right? It can be bleak for some people. Like, wait a minute, maybe I can't actually make anything better. Maybe there is no cause and effect. Maybe like no matter what I think I'm choosing – I'm not actually choosing anything. And no matter what I do, the future is going to happen a certain way and terrible things are always going to happen. And so maybe Billy Pilgrim is someone who kind of is in that situation due to his experiences. And maybe that's Vonnegut's way of showing us, hey, don't get like this. Yes, terrible things can happen, but I can still be kind to you. I can still in my way try to be better. Um, and I don't know if that's what he's trying to do, but it seems like he does have that element of kindness that's the only thing i could come up with and by i meaning him yeah uh, that's why i always love going beyond his purpose there's just a bunch of ways you could look at this novel because of the way it's written and it's cool and fun to do that because what i take off of you you could do a reading of this novel where you almost look at the tralfamadorians uh, ironically they they seem like a better species than us but are they is it an ironic way of seeing them as better because they understand these things more because they understand because they do not see cause and effect? Does that actually make them better than us? Um, so off of your reading of this quotation, you could look at, oh, he's becoming like a Tralfamadorian and doesn't need to go protest the Vietnam. Is that a better way of looking at things? But then you could go in a completely imposing view. And you could look at the fact that he doesn't go to protest the Vietnam because, and this is so funny, like what you're doing while you're reading and how it affects what you're reading. So I was teaching Dadaism while I was reading Slaughterhouse-Five or right before I had read Slaughterhouse-Five. And the Dadaist idea is uh, they're, they're in World War One, which is even worse than World War Two because there's no clear evil that they're fighting against in like a Hitler they're just fighting for greed and no reason. And the Dadaists were like, our society sucks and we're removing ourselves from it. Because if we entered in with an argument against this war, then we would be entering into that society and we would just be uh, continuing the arguments that are in the society. We are going to remove ourselves from the society, uh, create almost a whole different language because 
this society needs to be started over fresh and new. And to some extent, you could almost read this quotation in a Dadaist view and see him as not protesting the Vietnam War, as removing himself from the continual conflicts of humanity. And I don't know if Vonnegut would have uh, gone against protesters, but you could see this as saying, like, yes, protests are all well and good, but it's also just part of the continual conflict that is humanity. It's not necessarily stopping anything as much as just starting a new argument. Like I said, you could explore so many different essays with this novel. It was a great pick. I'm going to take credit for picking it up. <laughs> I just think, too, so much of it is instead of blatantly telling you war is bad, he really just follows that like show don't tell kind of thing where it's like here's a bunch of really terrible things. They happened in a war. You can't possibly read this book and see Billy Pilgrim's experience through World War Two like his experience in World War II, and go, it's so terrible. It's just like terrible thing after terrible thing after terrible thing. And this numb character of Billy Pilgrim, it's terrible in the grandest sense of like the bombing and all that. But it's also terrible in that like, you know, he, there's some awful characters in the book that he runs into. The eventual cause of Billy Pilgrim's death at the end of the book is he gets assassinated by this guy who wants to kill him because that who was the guy at the very beginning who we, the three musketeers weary we're going to yeah. come back to weary yeah and weary basically yeah. just tells this other guy my plight is due to billy pilgrim and this other guy is like i'm going to kill billy pilgrim later and you just look at it and you go war is terrible and then there's that whole other piece where he's talking about how there are no characters in war because war basically resists people wanting to be characters. They just It just numbs you, and everyone who's actually been in a war realizes how terrible it is, especially if you're a front line and you've seen actual action. Yeah, uh, bringing in the next consciousness book that we're going to try to apply, I read The Strange Order of Things by Antonio Damasio, and he talks a lot about feelings and homeostasis. And for him, homeostasis is big. He says, it ensures that life is regulated within a range that is not just compatible with survival, but also conducive to flourishing, to a projection of life in the future of an organism or a species. And Damasio's been on homeostasis for a while, uh, for like 10 to 20 years now. But he takes the idea of homeostasis and he turns it into a cultural thing, cultural homeostasis. And he goes on to say, the consequence of a successful cultural response is the decline or canceling of the motivating feeling, a process that requires monitoring changing in homeostatic stasis. In turn, the eventual adoption of the actual intellectual responses and their inclusion in a cultural corpus or their abandonment are a complex process resulting from the interactions of various social groups over time. So he's talking about how memes, the word that Daniel Dennett uses, come into our culture and stay in our culture. And you already mentioned how Dresden would not be in our culture I don't believe if Vonnegut doesn't write this novel because I don't know about the firebombing of Dresden. And it's important for Dresden to be in our culture because the atom bomb is dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is a giant part of our culture. But that's a debatable moment. I mean, I think everybody would agree dropping the atom bomb is never a good thing. But there were what some people would argue are legitimate reasons to end the war in the Pacific front to drop the atom right. bomb. There isn't as much of a legitimate reason for the firebombing of Dresden, which killed as many people as the atom bombs. Dresden is a city of civilians. There's no military base. No, at least that's how it's presented in the novel. Because even the people there, I think it's brought up that this isn't a military target in any sense. So we're safe. According to Wikipedia and other sources, 
The bombing of Dresden remains controversial and is subject to an ongoing debate by historians and scholars regarding the moral and military justifications surrounding the event. Immediate German propaganda claims following the attacks and post-war discussions of whether the attacks were justified have led to the bombing becoming one of the moral cause celebs of the war. A 1953 United States Air Force report defended the operation as the justified bombing of a strategic target, which, they noted, was a major rail transport and communication center housing 110 factories and 50,000 workers in support of the German war effort. Several researchers claim that not all of the communications infrastructure, such as the bridges, were targeted, nor were the extensive industrial areas which were located outside the city center. Critics of the bombing have asserted that Dresden was a cultural landmark while downplaying its strategic significance and claim that the attacks were indiscriminate area bombing and not proportionate to the military gains. Some have claimed that the raid constituted a war crime. Some people, including many in the German far right, refer to the bombing as a mass murder, calling it Dresden's Holocaust of Bombs. In the decades since the war, large variations in the claimed death toll have fueled the controversy, though the numbers themselves are no longer a major point of contention among historians. In March 1945, the German government ordered its press to publish a falsified casualty figure of 200,000 for the Dresden raids, and death tolls as high as 500,000 have been claimed. The city authorities at the time estimated up to 25,000 victims, a figure that subsequent investigations supported, including a 2010 study commissioned by the city council. The extent to which Vonnegut intentionally promulgated a potentially false account of the bombing remains somewhat unclear. In the special introduction to the 1976 Franklin Library edition of the novel, he wrote, quote, The Dresden atrocity, tremendously expensive and meticulously planned, was so meaningless, finally, that only one person on the entire planet got any benefit from it. I am that person. I wrote this book, which earned a lot of money for me and made my reputation, such as it is. One way or another, I got two or three dollars for every person killed. Some business I'm in. The death toll of 135,000 given by Vonnegut was taken from The Destruction of Dresden, a 1963 book by David Irving. In a 1965 letter to The Guardian, Irving later adjusted his estimates even higher, quote, almost certainly between 100,000 and 250,000. But all these figures were shortly found to be inflated. Irving finally published a correction in the Times in a 1966 letter to the editor, lowering it to 25,000, in line with subsequent scholarship. Despite Irving's eventual much lower numbers and later accusations of generally poor scholarship, the figure popularized by Vonnegut remains in general circulation. By contrast, the total casualties of the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki is generally considered to be around 200,000 people, mostly civilians. The necessity of their use is still controversial to this day, and it remains the only use of nuclear weapons in armed conflict. For more on both of these undoubtedly terrible historical events, see the links in the show notes. So Vonnegut brings this into our cultural consciousness, and it becomes a meme. And it becomes a interesting aspect of World War II because it's often simplified into Hitler is evil, whatever we need to do to beat Hitler is okay. Because mm -hmm. then it goes back to, if you start to think about where the cultural homeostasis exists in the novel, and it goes into our whole beautiful illusions concept of hyperreality, how we view war, goes right back to chapter one, and it goes right back to O'Hare's wife, which uh, you mentioned before, I think. And yeah. she says, you were just babies in the war, like the ones upstairs. That's Mary from the previous quotation that's making noise. I nodded that this was true. 
we had been foolish virgins in the war right at the end of childhood. But you're not going to write it that way, are you? The wife insists. This wasn't a question. It was an accusation. I, I don't know, I said. Well, I know, she said. You'll pretend you were men instead of babies, and you'll be played in the movies by Frank Sinatra and John Wayne or some of those other glamorous, war-loving, dirty old men, and war will look just wonderful, so we'll have a lot more of them, and they'll be fought by babies like the babies upstairs. And here he brings in this whole idea of how our cultural homeostasis is maybe headed in a weird way, in an unproductive way towards war because of how culture presents war. Well, right after where you stopped, he says, uh, so then I understood it was war that made her so angry. She didn't want her babies or anybody else's babies killed in wars, right? That's a very common human sentiment. I think no matter who you are on what side you're on, we, we all have babies and we all want to protect our babies, right? That's a biological evolved thing that we want to do. Just really quickly, uh, that's her personal homeostasis fighting against the cultural homeostasis. So yeah, we could use Damasio. All right, keep going. And she thought, so this is a quote from the book now, and she thought wars were partly encouraged by books and movies. This is something we've explored quite a bit, I think, or we've at least talked about it. I think we talked about it a little bit in the Two Cultures episode with humanities versus sciences, and we talked about it, I think, a little bit when we talked about Frankenstein, maybe, romanticism and things like that, and this idea that these war stories, um, the glorification of war, the fact that the histories of wars are written by the winners— And they tend to cast themselves as the protagonists. This goes back. Our oldest stories, right? Like Gilgamesh and things like that. They're essentially war stories, right? Yeah. Somebody goes off to battle and... Well, and Vonnegut even mentions a few of these war stories. He mentions not necessarily war stories, but he mentions atrocities similar to Dresden throughout the book. He mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. He mentions other crusades or bombings like Dresden. So... I made a connection back to, I was talking to you about it before we started, when we read a little bit of The Republic, and Plato talks a lot about this idea of education in stories. So I'm just going to read a little bit. Um, this is Plato in a dialogue with somebody else. What kind of education shall we give them? We shall find it difficult to improve on the time-honored distinction between the physical training we give to the body and the education we give to the mind and character. True. And we shall begin by educating mind and character, shall we not? Of course. In this education, you would include stories, would you not? Yes. Then it seems that our first business is to supervise the production of stories and choose only those we think suitable and reject the rest. We shall persuade mothers and nurses to tell our chosen stories to their children and by means of them to mold their minds and characters, which are more important than their bodies. The greater part of the stories current today, we shall have to reject. And then he continues on. Poets and storytellers are in error in matters of the greatest human importance. They have said that unjust men are often happy and just men wretched, that wrongdoing pays if you can avoid being found out and that justice is what is good for someone else but is to your own disadvantage. We must forbid them to say this sort of thing and require their poems and stories to have quite the opposite moral. Moreover, such lies are positively harmful. For those who hear them will be lenient towards their own shortcomings if they believe that this sort of thing is and was always done by the relatives of the gods. If we want our prospective guardians to believe that quarrelsomeness is one of the worst evils, we must certainly not let them be told the story of the battle of the giants or embroider it on robes. We can admit to our state no stories about Hera being tied up by her son or Hephaestus 
being flung out of heaven by his father for trying to help his mother when she was getting a beating. This whole idea back from Plato that the stories that we tell impact what's going on. And that's literally what he's referencing there through the character of Mary and why he then says, well, if I do write this book, I'm going to call it the children's crusade. It's going to basically not glorify war. And I don't think there's anything in this book that could even remotely be seen as glorification, right? There's only that one scene where he says there's no characters, but this guy was going to be a character. Yep. And what he does, I think, at that point, and he was the teacher, is he, he gives a little soliloquy, which is basically an anti-war. He's little, trying to basically piece. reinstill humanity to the American uh, prisoners of war, yeah. I think, is the essence yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I just thought that that was interesting. All this cultural idea and thought. We're talking about modern neuroscience and, and consciousness and things like that. But you go all the way back to these ancient philosophers and you find, again, one of the things that I think was so appealing to us when we really started this project is dipping our toes in the waters of being part of this culture of thinking that's existed in humanity going back thousands of years. Again, brainstorm of a potential essay. There's so much more that could be explored. Vonnegut clearly has this apart. He has the photographer who poses Billy in a picture as propaganda. He has all these other little chunks that go through this, but I'm going to jump to the last really big book that I wanted to use in consciousness. There's one more, but I, I couldn't really figure out how to apply the last <laughs> book. Uh, and then we're running... Uh, we're, we're running, running a little long. We're running long. Get that so, fifth book in. Yeah, because yeah. this is by one of our favorite thinkers, and I think it's my favorite book on Consciousness is Consciousness in the Brain by Stanislas Dehaene. He's uh, one of the big proponents of the global neuronal workspace, which we've talked about and we'll get into further in the future. Uh, he talks about the self, though, and I thought this quotation would be a cool quotation. He says, if this view of the self is correct, then the neural underpinnings of our own identity are built up in a rather indirect manner, unconsciously, essentially. Our statistical brain constantly draws inferences about what it observes, literally making up its mind as it proceeds. Learning who we are is a statistical deduction from observation. Having spent a lifetime with ourselves, we reach a view of our own character, knowledge, and confidence that is only a bit more refined than our view of other people's personalities. So we don't actually know ourselves more than we know other people. Uh, well, we do, but only slightly. We never generally know our true selves. We remain largely ignorant of the actual unconscious determinants of our behavior, and therefore we cannot accurately predict what our behavior will be in circumstances beyond the safety zone of our past experiences. And I want to use this one to jump into our last character, our character um, that you mentioned before, the character of Weary, who is this gung-ho soldier who's initially with Billy Pilgrim in the snows of Germany trying to not get captured, and the two of them get taken as prisoners of war, and he has this whole convoluted version of himself. The reason why this works well, because it fits with what we were just doing with Dehane, because Weary has developed his own concept of himself, but his concept of himself is very much based on fictions. Mm -hmm. uh, as you mentioned before, he thinks him and these two other spies or scouts, two other scouts are the three musketeers, and he thinks they're going to win the war. He's the type of figure that O'Hare's wife is afraid of. The figure, well, not afraid of, but is worried that Vonnegut's going to keep creating if he writes a war novel. Uh, he's the figure who has seen John Wayne in the movies, and because of John Wayne being a war hero, imagines himself as this war hero when he's in the actual war that is World War II. Uh, and 
Uh, again, he's not recognizing his full self, obviously, because this self has been created by the unconscious processes of culture that he has seen and absorbed. Yeah, and it's crazy how total this, I don't know if I want to call your subjective nature or your conscious nature of yourself an illusion necessarily. There's something real there. You're experiencing something, I guess. But at the same time, like you're saying, you just don't realize how much of it is a narrative construction that is being presented to your consciousness by this regulatory mechanism that's going on below the level of awareness, right? And, you know, I think of some of those, I know I've heard them describe some of those like funny experiments where it's like, you know, people who have injuries, I'm going to say all this wrong, but right brain or left brain, where it's like, you know, you show them a pornographic image and they blush but because they can only see like process the sight through this side of their brain yeah. the part that tells the story doesn't know what they saw so yeah. it so the, when you ask them why are you blushing they, they literally invent yeah. a story yeah. that isn't the real reason and it, that's an obvious testable thing but there's no reason to think that that's not what's happening all the time right According to Wikipedia, split brain is a type of disconnection syndrome when the corpus callosum connecting the two hemispheres of the brain is severed to some degree. It is an association of symptoms produced by disruption of or interference with the connection between the hemispheres of the brain. The surgical operation to produce this condition, corpus callostomy, involves transection of the corpus callosum and is usually a last resort to treat certain types of epilepsy. After the right and left brain are separated, Each hemisphere will have its own separate perception, concepts, and impulses to act. Having two brains in one body can create some interesting dilemmas. When split-brain patients are shown an image only in the left half of each eye's visual field, they cannot vocally name what they have seen. This is because the image seen in the left visual field is sent only to the right side of the brain, and most people's speech control center is on the left side of the brain. Communication between the two sides is inhibited, so the patient cannot say out loud the name of that which the right side of the brain is seeing. A number of famous and important studies have been done with split-brain patients who receive this treatment. As described in the 2015 Atlantic article, One Head, Two Brains, in a 1977 study with a 15-year-old split-brain patient from Vermont identified as P.S., Psychology professor and cognitive neuroscience researcher Michael Gazaniga and his graduate assistant Joseph Ledoux, who was mentioned earlier in this episode, performed a visual test where they asked P.S. to stare straight ahead at a dot and then flashed a picture of a chicken foot to his right, where it was only seen by his right eye and transmitted to his brain's left hemisphere, and a picture of a snowy scene to his left, where it was only seen by his left eye and transmitted to his brain's right hemisphere. Directly in front of the patient, so that he could process the sight with both hemispheres, was a series of eight other pictures. When the researchers asked him to point to the ones that went with the images he saw, P.S. pointed to the picture of a chicken head and a picture of a snow shovel. When faced with incomplete information, the left brain can fill in the blanks. So far, the results were as expected. Each hemisphere had led P.S. to choose an image that went along with the one that he had seen from that side moments earlier. The surprise came when the researchers asked him why he chose these two totally unrelated images. Because the left hemisphere, which controls language, had not processed the snowy scene, they believed P.S. wouldn't be able to verbally articulate why he chose the snow shovel. According to Gazaniga, the left brain doesn't know why because that information is in the right hemisphere. Neither hemisphere knew what the other had seen, and because the two sides of his brain were unable to communicate, P.S. should have been confused when Gazaniga asked him why he had picked the two images he did. 
But as Gazaniga recalled in his memoir, P.S. didn't skip a beat. Oh, that's simple, the patient told them. The chicken claw goes with the chicken, and you need a shovel to clean out the chicken shed. Here's what happened, as the researchers later deduced. Rather leading him to simply say, I don't know, to Gazaniga's question, P.S.'s left brain concocted an answer as to why he had picked those two images. In a brief instant, the left brain took two unconnected pieces of information it had received from the environment, the two images, and told a story that drew a connection between them. Gazaniga went on to replicate the findings of this study many times with various co-authors. When faced with incomplete information, the left brain can fill in the blanks. Based on these findings, Gazaniga developed the theory that the left hemisphere is responsible for our sense of psychological unity, the fact that we are aware of and reflect upon what is happening at any given moment. It's the part of the brain, Gazaniga said, that takes disparate points of information in and weaves them into a storyline and meaning even if that storyline and meaning might not be real. For more on the fascinating subject of split-brain research, see the links in the show notes. So much of when somebody asks you, why did you do that or why do you feel that, you, your brain literally just comes up with a story in the moment that makes sense to you and makes you feel like you're a good person or whatever, or your actions were justified. And you know, to what degree is any of that real and to how much of it is shaped by everything that's absorbed from the culture around us. This is a major theme of our discussion that we've been having on and on and on for years. And I'm not going to read it, uh, but there's a very long quotation about uh, Weary. And uh, well, I could cut to the chase. His war story was at a very exciting point. This is when they're trying to not get captured. An officer was congratulating the three musketeers, telling them that he was going to put them in for bronze stars. And this is all being made up in Weary's head. Anything else I can do for you boys, said the officer. And this sounds like it comes from a John Wayne movie. And there's so much. Again, we are very much just uh, purposefully glancing the surface. I'm going to skip my last book. It's Rethinking Consciousness by Michael S.A. Graziano. It's a cool book. He has this whole attention schema theory, which I'm sure we'll look back on. But I just want to jump ahead to the idea of free will, because I think uh, that's an appropriate place for us to end. Uh, unless there's, do you, Is there anything else you want to touch on before we get to free will? No, not really. Um, you know, we didn't talk much about just that little bit about uh, the Trial Famidorian books and how they read them all at once, which I thought was cool. But that just goes back to what would a story be like to someone who could perceive all time and, at, uh, at, well, at once, right? And we don't need to get deep into it now, but I just thought it was a cool little a cool And just little mention, because um, you mentioned this before we started, so this book is kind of like that. Yes, this book is like that. So I love the fact that the whole first chapter is Vonnegut talking about him writing the book. And then at the end of that chapter, he says, here's how the book begins and here's how the book ends. And there's something thrilling to reading this book and reading the lines. So I'm just going to read them because I find it to be a thrilling thing. And I don't know why it's so thrilling, but... uh... He, I, I think the perceptiveness of Vonnegut, the sneaky perceptiveness that comes through simple writing is why it's so thrilling. Yeah, and he, and he writes, so at the end of chapter run, he writes, it begins like this. Listen, Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. It ends like this, pooty wheat, <laughs> which is like, you know, him making a bird noise. And then right there on the next page, listen, Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. And it's then like, turn to the last And page. then you go to the very <laughs> last page and... Who do you eat? <laughs> yeah, it's there. It's like, I love this, right? The, the very end. 
Billy and the rest wandered out onto the shady street. The trees were leafing out. There was nothing going on out there. No traffic of any kind. There was only one vehicle, an abandoned wagon drawn by two horses. The wagon was green and coffin-shaped. Birds were talking. One bird said to Billy Pilgrim, Pooty wheat. <laughs> you know, and it's <laughs> like, end. and that's the end. And it's, it's like. It's hilarious because it's an ending, but it's almost a non-ending at yeah. the same time. Yeah. Well, because <laughs> the ending is really the bombing of, of Dresden, Dresden yeah. which is really the one moment in the book where Billy Pilgrim, we didn't talk about this, and I don't really know what this means. It's, it's yeah. the one moment that Billy Pilgrim recalls through his memory, but isn't actually revisiting. He lays down he and remembers it, and it yeah. tells that specific moment of the bombing, and everything else before and after it, he goes to that time and experiences it as if it's happening. I just thought that that was an interesting choice by Vonnegut, but yeah, like the, essentially the climax of the book is, it's not quite the middle, but it's, uh, it's not the end either. Yeah. Which it, makes sense from the point of view that if you experienced all time at any moment, there would be no beginning, middles, and ends, right? So yeah. why not have the climax not at the end of the book, you know, right? And of what? course, you're going to know the end when, you, when you're at the beginning. Right. Yeah. yeah. Very yeah. cool. And so then he goes into a Tralfamadorian quotation. Um, it's going to repeat some of the things we said, but it's new. All time is all time. It does not change. It does not lend itself to warnings or explanations. It simply is. Take it moment by moment, and you'll find that we are all, as I've said before, bugs in amber. You sound to me as though you don't believe in free will, said Billy Program. If I hadn't spent so much time studying earthlings, said the Tralfamadorian, I wouldn't have any idea what was meant by free will. I visited 31 inhabited planets in the universe, and I have studied reports on 100 more only on Earth is there any talk of free will. And we have been going back and forth ourselves on the idea of free will and where it exists and where it doesn't exist. And I believe uh, we are going to try to dive into that in our next episode. So I'm just going to give a taste of the main philosopher who, who defends free will is Daniel Dennett. But it's very interesting the way he defends it. This is not from his specific book on free will. This is from the consciousness book, Beethoven book that I mentioned before. He says, Dennett says, the traditional view of free will as a personal power somehow isolated from physical causation is both incoherent and unnecessary. The scientists and philosophers who declare free will a fiction or illusion are right. And this comes back to you saying, uh, we'll, uh, which we'll dive into when we talk about free will, what illusion means. Because uh, Sean Carroll doesn't like that word illusion. It is part of the user illusion of the manifest image. And that's what uh, Daniel Dennett says consciousness is too, a user illusion. This is not an illusion we should want to dismantle or erase. It is a worthy item in the ontology of the human manifest image. Once we strip off some of the accrued magic of tradition and reground them in scientific reality... All right. And then, I mean, it might be an interesting question to ask whether, um, so we could, because we're still applying the cognitive lens, does Vonnegut actually not believe in free will? Is he looking at the Tralfamadorian consciousness of not having free will as like a consciousness we might, uh, we can never try to be like the Tralfamadorians fully, but is he, is that a better consciousness than his mind? Is that a, a or, and it is free will just an illusion? Yeah, that's... Uh, I think we need another hour. Yeah, another hour. It <laughs> sounds like we need another episode. There's really only uh, one thing to say to all of that. What? Pooty wheat. <laughs> Pooty wheat, indeed. So it goes. I'll be honest. I was a little skeptical because I didn't know where I was headed with all this consciousness stuff, but that was fun, and uh, a lot of it came more together. So yeah. um, I'm not sure who proposed... No, you proposed Hamlet. We're going to do Hamlet next, right? 
Yeah, it's, that's the next cognitive lens book. So yeah, a year so from now. A year from now, we'll read Hamlet. And we will try to apply the whatever new cognitive ideas we have read at that point in time, or go back to some old, yeah. old, oldies but goodies. The Bard. The Bard. <laughs> well, my favorite thing about William Shakespeare is kind of what we've been talking about with Slaughterhouse Five, is the beauty of William Shakespeare is when you go back and what you just talked about with Plato. He has predicted because he had a keen understanding of the human condition, he has predicted a lot of things that have come after him. A lot of ideas that have come after him exist already in the works of William Shakespeare. So we'll see how much of cognitivism he has predicted. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. All in the future or the present. or So our future episode already exists. Our future episode already exists. That's going to make it much easier to record. <laughs> and edit. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Beautiful Illusions. We sincerely hope you enjoyed the conversation and more importantly, that it made you think about something in a new way. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and more importantly, share with your friends. The Beautiful Illusions theme was written, performed, and recorded by Darren Vigliotti and Joseph Vigliotti. For a complete set of show notes with links to almost everything we discuss or reference, corrections and elaborations as well as other miscellaneous bits and pieces please visit our website beautifulillusions.org